Good morning and welcome to the Mount. I want to say good morning to those of you here in Stafford and those joining us for our online campus or maybe down at our Fredericksburg campus. We're so glad to spend this morning with you as we finish up our series, Think Small or Start Small, Think Big. And so if you're joining us for the first time, this is the third week in a series, a three-week series, where we've been talking about generosity. More specifically, we've been talking about generosity when it comes to our finances. And I know some of you are like, this has been the longest three weeks of my life. I get it. You're there, right? Uh, But no. So uh, we've been in this series on generosity. And what we've said from the very beginning, just as a recap for those of us that maybe have been in and out or maybe joining us for the first time, we've said from the very beginning that living a generous lifestyle, being people who are generous in the way that God was generous to us, is something that as your pastor, I desperately want for you, not from you. We have said that it is another element of our spiritual journey. Just another part of our spiritual discipleship, the the process of us becoming more and more like Jesus every single day. In the same way that prayer as your pastor, I, I, I desperately want you to love to be people of prayer to where you are are excited and passionate about prayer. I I love, as your pastor, for you to be someone who is excited and passionate about diving into God's word, his scripture, and seeing what he has to say for your life as it transforms you. And the same way with generosity is something I desperately want for you. And we said from, from 2 Corinthians 8, 7, where Paul's talking to the church in Corinth, and he's using an example. He says this, and this is the prayer I've had for you from the very beginning. It says this, verse 7. But since you excel in everything... You excel, and then he lists the things they excel in. He says, you excel in faith, you excel in knowledge, you excel in speech, you excel in your complete earnestness or your your passion, your zeal, your devotion to the Lord. He says, because you excel in all these areas of your spiritual life, see to it that you also excel in the grace of giving. Why? Because, we've said this every week, there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, he tells us, for where our treasure goes, there our heart will be also. And we've said this idea that we want to say that wherever we think about is where we spend our money, but that's not how it happens. Instead, what we see Jesus saying is this principle of wherever we give our money to, that's where our heart, our focus, our attention, and our devotion go to. And we said that for some of us, for the majority of us, myself included, that we are naturally selfish people who focus on themselves, our things, our wants, our needs, our desires. We focus on our, our, our family, our home, our, our materialistic things, and all the things that we want, and we wonder why we only think about ourselves. And we said that Jesus tells us, if you want to think about the world, if you want to think about others, if you want to think about eternity, if you want to think about God's kingdom, give your money to those things, and your heart will follow And through this series, we've said kind of two main points. And the first one is we've said it's not about our capacities, but it's about our priorities. Remember, we we looked at the story of the widow last week, and she she gave these two measly coins, these two small copper coins that were almost weightless and had almost no value at all. But Jesus looks at his disciples and says she gave more than the rich people. Why? It wasn't about the amount. It was about the priority that she gave. She made it a focus, a priority. It was part of her heart. It was what she wanted to do. And the other thing we said is we said that it really comes down to living this lifestyle of generosity comes down to trust. We said that following Jesus means we have to surrender absolute trust in numerous areas of our lives. 
We've said that over and over again, we have to surrender all of these areas of our lives. And when it comes to our finances, it's another area that we surrender absolute control to because that's what it means to follow Jesus. And so this morning, we're just going to wrap up this series. And my, my hope, my prayer is to make this as kind of practical and applicable as I can. And in fact, you may, you may leave this morning and when you're at lunch or driving, wherever you're driving, you may be like, you know, like, that felt kind of weird. It almost felt like too practical or too applicable. That was not his normal. And that's the intent here. The intent here is to make this almost as like easily accessible, like, you know, cookies on the bottom shelf, low-hanging fruit, whatever you want to say. Because I realize in a room like this that there are a lot of us, and we are at different areas and levels of our generosity. There are some of us, and I hear stories of people who are, are giving 30, 40, 50% of their income away to God's causes, doing incredible kingdom work. And there are others of us who have never given a single dime to anyone outside of Christmas or the bank account, right? Like, we just pay our bills. And so we come in all these different kind of spectrums and backgrounds are where we are. And so today, I hope it just means we kind of, as practically as we can, set the fruit down at the bottom. And so what I want to do today is I want to help you, um, I want to help you move from kind of this idea of desiring to do something to actually doing something. Does that make sense? Are you, are you tracking with me, right? Like, it's very easy to say, okay, we spent the last couple of weeks talking about the theology behind giving and generosity and why it matters. It's very easy to be like, yes, Adam, I agree with you. Like, that makes total sense. God's a generous God. He gives to me. I'm a steward. I'm supposed to respond back. All of that makes perfect sense. I, I, I believe that. I value that. I desire that. But it's something different to actually implement it. Right? Like, well, this makes sense to us. We would say, like, I, I, I desire to be someone who spends more time in prayer. I see the, the benefit to prayer. I desire to be that kind of person. But unless I sit down and find a rhythm in my daily schedule to begin to practice the discipline of prayer, I will never be a person of prayer. The same way with scripture. I desire to read scripture. I desire to know what God says to me, to, to how he transforms my life. But until I, I sit down and create space and create time in my schedule and make it a priority and do something and implement a plan, I will never be a person who reads scripture the same way with generosity. We can value it and we can desire it and we can want it. But unless we implement it, we're not a generous person. And so I just want to give you kind of a plan to help us all maybe live a generous lifestyle. And the first one, if you're taking notes, is this. Uh, to live a generous lifestyle, we will first start with prayer. We will first start with prayer. This one's real, real simple. It's super easy, right? But what I'm asking you to do is just to begin with prayer. For the last several weeks now, we've, we've said that there's this fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. We've come back to that over and over again. We've seen secular sociologists tell us that regardless of the Bible, regardless of theology, when you just look at the statistics, the data, that people who give their money away, not people who hoard it, but people who are generous and give it away, they are more happy, they are more healthy, and they find more purpose in life. We've seen in scripture that one of the main ways to break this intense selfishness that holds on to our lives, like Jesus said, where our treasure goes, our heart goes, is to begin to give money away to other people to make our heart focus on them and be less selfish for us. We've seen in scripture that you and I are owners, or we're not owners, we're stewards. God owns everything, and we have been entrusted with finances and riches to be able to do the things he wants us to do on this earth, to enjoy the blessings he gives us, but also to further his kingdom. We've seen in scripture that living a life of generosity is less about money and more about obedience and surrender and trust. And so in light of all of this, like, here's what I want to ask you. And if you hear, if you hear nothing else this morning, right, like, hear this. If you, if you want to be done after this and just start checking your fantasy football scores, that's fine. If you need to make your grocery list, that's fine. I just, I'm asking you to hear this. Will you commit to seeking after God and asking him 
what he would want for you in the area of your finances and living a generous lifestyle. That's it. That's what I'm asking. Like, that's, that's the ask. James 1.5 says it this way. It says, if you need wisdom, like if you, if you need insight, if you need wisdom, if you need knowledge, if you need to know how to handle or move forward in a certain situation, what does James say to do? He says, to ask our generous God, and he will give it to you, and he will not rebuke you for asking. Listen, listen. You've been here, maybe, maybe this is your first week and you're like already skeptical or you've been here all three weeks and you're still skeptical. That's fine. Be skeptical. Be like, Adam, I hear what you're saying. I know you're pointing to scripture. I'm just not sure yet. That's fine. Don't do anything I've asked you to do except this one thing. Will you just seek God and ask him, God, open-handed, when it comes to the area of finances in my life, when it comes to living a generous lifestyle, what do you have for me? What do you want for me? We start with prayer. So first, to live a lifestyle of generosity, we start with prayer. And secondly, we will plan to practice consistently. We will plan to practice consistently. Listen, as Americans, we are extremely, extremely generous when it comes to spontaneous moments. Does that make sense? Like, like think when a national tragedy happens, we all respond I mean, it's all over the news, it's all over Facebook, everyone's raising money on their GoFundMe page, whatever it happens to be. When there's some sort of national tragedy, when there's a natural disaster, when something happens, even if it's across the world in another country, you know, when something happens, we step up and in those moments, we spontaneously respond. Maybe we, we, we round to the nearest dollar at the grocery store, or we, we take a special offering, whatever it happens to do, we respond in those moments, why? Because we value generosity in those moments. But listen, listen. There is a huge difference, vastly huge difference between spontaneous generosity and the discipline of being generosity. There is a vast difference in these. For those of us that follow Jesus, we understand that when it comes to engaging in scripture and reading God's word, and it's not the spontaneous moments where it happens, it's the, the spiritual discipline of practicing it that matters, right? Like, we understand that if I wanna be a person of prayer, I can't just be like, never pray, and then all of a sudden be like, I'm in the hospital, I should probably pray right now. That's not a person of prayer, that is a person who in a single moment said a prayer, but living a lifestyle of prayer means we practice it consistently over time for repeated months and years and weeks, right? The same thing happens with scripture reading and all these other areas, why would generosity be any different? If we want to be people who live a lifestyle of generosity, it can't be spontaneous. It can't be random. It has to be thought out, intentional. It has to be planned for us to practice it. Several sociologists from the University of Notre Dame's Science of Generosity Lab, I talked about them the first week, like, what a cool job, right? Like, they just study how other people spend their money. Like, that. they just study generosity. But they said this, they, they, they published a book, The Paradox of Generosity, and in it they said this, and I, I want you to see this quote. For generosity to enhance one's well-being, it must be practiced. Generosity changes people through processes of formation, not isolated behaviors. And what does formation require? Formation requires time, repetition, and practice. There is a difference between random generosity and living a lifestyle of generosity. Recently on Facebook, uh, Jason, one of our missionary partners in Papua New Guinea, he posted a, a picture, some pictures and some stories, and he also sent them to the church. And I just want to share with you guys these morning, this, this morning. Jason had the opportunity. He's been, you know, 
there, and he, he kind of had this ceremony. His hair is growing really long, but he had this ceremony where he was going to cut his hair, and he gathered, you know, he beat the drums. That's what he said in his post, and all the village came to him and Wabuku people, and he said this. He said, I told the story. He's telling the story that he told the people who were gathered. He said, I told the story of how Lakin, his wife, and I first learned that there were people like them, the people gathered, who still hadn't heard the good news of God's talk. He said, when we first learned this, I stopped cutting my hair until we could tell one of these people groups about Yahweh. He says, that was 12 years ago. I told them, the group, the people gathered, I told them we went to Bible school for three years, but we still couldn't tell them God's talk. So again, I didn't cut my hair. Then we trained to be as missionaries for two more years, but we still couldn't tell them God's talk. So I didn't cut my hair. Then for one year, we traveled to churches and little groups in America to ask believers to give monthly money to pay for our food and our other needs, but we still couldn't tell them about God's talk. So I didn't cut my hair. Then we moved to Papua New Guinea and spent a year learning the national language, but we still couldn't tell them God's talk, so I didn't cut my hair. Then we moved into Wabuku and worked for five calendar years to learn their heart language. And he says, and now that I've learned the language, I finally have the ability to share God's talk with them, so it's time to cut my hair. And so he, he goes through this ceremony with them and he cuts his hair and, with some logs, and then he says this at the end. He says, after the ceremony, I gave each guy a small box of goodies. I shook each hand, and then we get to the fun part. He says, our church, the Mount, had previously designed and purchased these slick, customized soccer jerseys for the Wabuku people. I called each guy by name and handed them a jersey. They were like kids on Christmas morning. Next time they show up to a soccer tournament in any other village, they will have gone from the small, honorless, hillbilly Wabukus to the envy of every other village. It was touching to see and watch how, un how being unexpectedly honored like this transformed their dispositions and boosted their self-esteem. And he goes on to say, replacing shame with honor is the business of Jesus. And it was a joy to do that in a small way. Thank you, church, for allowing us to do this job. It's not often fun or satisfying, but today was. Yeah. Listen. That didn't happen because we were spontaneous with our giving. That started 12 years ago. And for a period of 12 years, some of you have faithfully, week in, week out, month after month, year after year, practiced the spiritual discipline of generosity and gave into the mount. And you had a part in that. There's a difference between giving when you feel like it spontaneously and practicing the discipline of giving. Paul gives us some really good instructions on this in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. You'll, you'll see this. He says, now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem. So apparently they, they, had, they had questions about like taking up an offering and, and what that looked like. We don't know like what their question was, but it wasn't a why question. Paul doesn't answer this with the theology like we did the first couple weeks. He goes into the how or the what, right? And he says this. He says, you should follow the same procedure that I gave to the churches in Galatia or the, the church in Gala the Galatians. He says too, on the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money that you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. What's Paul saying here? He's saying the first day of the week. Now, that, what do you mean by that, Paul? So in most first century Palestinians and people in Corinth, all in that region, they were paid weekly is the way they were paid. 
right? And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, on the first day of the week, the day you get paid, you should set aside, and he uses the word portion. Some translations say keeping with your income. He says on the first day that you get paid, the first day of the week, set aside a portion keeping with your income to save that to give to God's work. He says, I don't want it to be spontaneous. I don't want it to be like, Paul's in town today. Everyone go find your bank accounts and your money. Let's do this. No, no. He says, I want it to be planned out ahead of time. If Paul was here talking to us right now, he would say, listen, if you get paid daily, set it aside daily. If you get paid weekly, set it aside weekly. If you get paid monthly, set it aside monthly. If you get paid on commission, set it aside when you cash the check for the commission for the sale that you had. But put a priority, make a plan, and make sure you are doing it in a consistent way. Why? Because it's not about spontaneous moments that matter. It's about the practice of the spiritual discipline that leads to a lifestyle of generosity. So let me just be practical with you. I've tried to do this most weeks in this series. For my family and I, we get paid every other week here at the Mount, right? So like every other Friday. And so what we have done is we've gone online in order to help us plan and practice this discipline. We've gone online to the church's website, and we have set up to do an auto draft on our, on our bank account, right? And so every single other Friday, when I wake up... Um, in my email box, I have two emails already ready. If, like if you filter out all the junk mail, right? Like you have two emails. I have one email that is usually comes in around 3 or 3.30 in the morning, and it's from the mount being like, hey, congratulations, you got paid today. It's one of my favorite emails I get every other week, right? I love it. But usually, and don't miss this, usually around 5 or 5.30, and I'm not up yet, don't judge me, okay? So usually around that time, I get an email that comes in from the mount as well saying, thank you for your continued support, and it has kind of my giving receipt, so every single other Friday, before I even wake up, I have practiced the discipline of generosity. I've planned and put procedures in place. And I know what you're saying, like the cynic in you, the skeptical is like, yeah, but did you really do it or was it automatic? Yeah, no, I still did it. I still feel it in my bank account, right? And so what I do is when I read that email, I still am able to take a moment and read that email about the generosity that it's doing to the mouth, and I can still take a moment and celebrate internally and be like, yes, like God, you're doing incredible things and I can pray over God, that money that was given today, use it to further your kingdom. I planned for it and I practice it. Here's a question. How are you planning to practice a lifestyle of generosity? Are you waiting for the moment when you feel like giving and just randomly, spontaneously doing it then? Because that's not what Jesus wants for you. That's not as your pastor, that's not what I want for you. I wouldn't want that for your prayer life, for your scripture reading life, or for your life of generosity. I want you to be people who have planned to practice generosity. How are you planning it? No one ever accidentally lives a lifestyle of generosity. We just don't. We drift the other way. So first, we start with prayer. Second, we plan to practice it consistently. And the third is we will prioritize it in the budget. We will prioritize it in the budget. Let me walk over here and give you an example of this. So for instance, for most of us, the natural tendency, because we are Americans, and that's just the way America works, the natural tendency that we are told is if our, if our budget, our financial life is three buckets. Just pretend. I know they're baskets. Pretend they're buckets with me, please, okay? So we've got three buckets. For the majority of us, what happens is this first bucket is spending, okay? This is the bucket that we say, okay, this is where I'm going to, all the money I need for spending, 
This bucket is like things like my car payment. It's my mortgage payment. It's my grocery bills. This is like all the, you know, the streaming accounts. I canceled, I canceled cable and now I have 13 streaming accounts I have to pay for. And it's just getting ridiculous. Every one of those all go in here, right? And this is all the things we need to live off of. This is our, our kids' clothes, our family's clothes, all of these things. This is what we spend. These are the things that we live off of. Does that make sense? For the majority of us, we base this very interestingly, because we would say, this is the money I spend, and if there is any left over, which in America there's typically not, and we'll come back to this, in America, most of us, we would say, this is 100% of the money I make, but we live on 102.7% of our budget every year. We go to debt 2.7% every year. We would say, this is the money I have. If there's any left over, then I'm going to save it. Right at the end of the month, I'm gonna look at the account, I'm gonna look at the budget and be like, hey, we did great this month, honey. There's $200 left over. Awesome, let's put it in savings. Or some of us would say, awesome, let's buy something new with it, right? Like that's really what we might do. But we would put it in savings. Then after we've spent all we're gonna spend and saved all we're gonna save, then we would give, right? You tracking with me? We spend first, we save, then we give. Then we're generous with what's left over at the very end. It's interesting though. There's this principle in the corporate world, it's about meetings, and some of you recognize this because you spend a lot of time in meetings. There's this principle that says, if I schedule a meeting with you for an hour, most likely it's not gonna go 30 minutes. It's going to go an hour. The conversation, the topic, the meeting will fill up whatever allowed time there is. If I schedule a meeting for 30 minutes, we will get just as much done as we did in an hour. We will just do it more efficiently and easier and quicker. Does that make sense? We will fill the time that we have allowed. This also applies to our finances. When we make our budget, if we say, this is the money I make, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do 100% of it here. Our bucket of spending will always fill to however much it's allowed to grow into. Does that make sense? Are you tracking? Scripture says it in this way. It says in Haggai 1 through 6, it says, you have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are never warm. Why? You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what would describe a lot of our financial life. I'm earning, I'm getting, I'm gathering, I'm having, but I just never have enough. It's as if the budget has holes in it. Now, Scripture, interestingly enough, kind of uses these same categories. It talks about spending, it talks about being smart, it talks about saving and being wise, and it talks about giving and being generous. But what's interesting in scripture is we see this. Scripture says, listen, give to God first. Make it a priority. Then be wise and set aside some for savings. And then be content and live on what is less. Right? We struggle with materialism and being content here in America. Scripture says, I have a plan for that. Be generous, be wise, and then be smart. Scripture says it this way a couple times. Listen to this. For when it comes to the saving idea, it says this, the Proverbs 21.20. It says, the wise store up choice food and olive oil. But what does the fool do? Gulps theirs down. 
We see this in Proverbs 6, where it talks about the ant that stores up things for later. We see this in the Old Testament example of Joseph when he goes into Egypt and he stores up things and actually saves the entire nation. We see in scripture that people who save are people who are wise. They don't hoard, they don't, they don't amass such great wealth that they never are able to do anything with it. No, because why we're generous first, but there is wisdom in storing up so they won't spend it all here. We wanna be generous, wise, and smart. What about this bucket? Why is it first? Interesting enough, scripture says over and over, and I'll give you one example, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. We've looked at this every week. It says this, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Just think about that verse. What scripture is saying is honor the Lord with your first fruits. And what does that mean? They were an agrarian society, which meant that they, they were farmers. They were people who gathered things. And a lot of times they would have to go sell those goods to get their income. And so what it's saying is it's saying, hey, when a crop season is coming, when it's time to go and harvest, the first part that you gather, the part that's usually the best, the part that's usually the ripest, that's ready to go, when you gather that, bring it to the Lord and give it to him first. Then your vats and your wine will overflow. Now, why, why first? Well, because if we do this first, we end up spending it all and we only give what's left over. God wants to be first. Here's another thing that happens in it. When we go to God first, when we make him a priority, it exercises our faith and trust. Think about if you're an agrarian person and an Israelite and you have to gather the crops and take that and deliver it to God, you don't know if the rest of the crops are even gonna come in. They may be hit by a plague. They may be hit by infestation. They may have locusts, whatever, but you are trusting God. I'm giving you what's here and I'm giving you what has been provided, knowing God that you are a good God and you will provide the other buckets when it is your time. We put him first. Remember, living a generous lifestyle is about discipleship. It's about putting God in the proper place in our lives, not just about our money. We put him First, it's not about our capacities, it's about our priorities. To live a lifestyle of generosity, we will start with prayer. We will plan to practice consistently. We will prioritize it in the budget. And fourth, we will give proportionally. We will give proportionally. Now, when it comes to living this generous lifestyle, um, proportion matters more than the amount. We, we talked about this last week for those of you who are here, right? The widow, she came and she dropped in these two little measly coins and they barely made any noise in the big trumpet. And Jesus looks at him and says, he looks at his disciples and says, guess what? She gave more than the rich people. And they're like, why did she give more? And he, we talked about, it's about the priority. It's about the, the heartbeat behind it. It's about putting it first, not about the amount necessarily. It's about giving in proportion to what you have in your income. So let me just give you a quick stat here. The average American Christian giver, not the average American Christian in church, but the average American Christian who is actively giving to the local church gives 0.62% of their annual income. Less than 1%. That feels really low to me. I don't know about, you may be like, well, that's incredible. I give zero. <laughs> I guess context matters, right? Like 0.62% is a lot for you. I don't know. But I, I look at what God wants and says, put me first and trust me. And what I see is the average American Christian trusts God 0.62%. That feels low to me. Now, what if I told you though, and some of you know where I'm going, so don't spoil it for the rest of us. What if I told you that there was a percentage that we see over and over in scripture 
And remember at the very beginning of this series, I said, what if there was one small thing you could do that would radically transform your life? Would you do it? What if I could, I could show you that there is a percentage in Scripture that when we give that percentage as a minimum standard, God does incredible things in our lives? What if I also could show you that there are secular sociologists who are not even religious, and after doing all this research and all this research, they found out the very same thing, that there is a certain percentage that if you give that amount of money, it actually brings blessings and benefits to your life. Would you do it? Would you do it? That percentage, right, the average American Christian giver is 0.62%. The percentage I see in Scripture is 10%. There is a major gap in our generosity. Let me just give you this. Uh, uh, the, the researchers, they found this. There's some graphs on the screen, and they show this. These are people who are so, secular sociologists. They said when it comes to living a life that is healthy and the benefits you get of health, you can see people who gave 10% or more. Look at how significant their level of health jumps. And you're like, that's only a certain amount of percentage. No, they would say that is a statistic significant percentage increase. It is important. It's there. The same thing for happiness. Look at this one. Happiness levels shoot up from people who are not giving at all for people giving 10% and above. Look at the change in the happiness level there. It changes dramatically. And in this one, which is even higher, the purpose in life. We all want to find our purpose in life. We all want to have meaning. They would say the people who give 10% or more have a significantly higher purpose in life, and they find value and worth in living. In fact, at the end of their research, they say this, and I'll quote this. They say Americans who don't give away 10% of their income run the significant risk of ending up less happy than they might have been otherwise. It's as if, it's as if these secular sociologists did all this research just to come back and say, you know what, maybe God and Jesus were onto something there. Maybe, just maybe, when they created everything and made some, some standards and some words in the Bible, they knew what would happen. Scripture says it this way, right? Scripture says in Leviticus 27, 30, and I, I could go through hundreds of verses to talk about. I just picked one because I like this one. It says, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord, for it is holy to the Lord. You say, well, what is a tithe? Let's talk about this for a second. A tithe is a very specific thing in Scripture. Remember, I said low-hanging fruit here, cookies on the bottom shelf. For a lot of us, when we give to a church, we would say, okay, I gave $20. I tithed $20 today. I put a tithe of $50 in the offering plate or in the bucket, whatever that happens to be. That's not a tithe. Like $10 would be a tithe if you made a very low sum of money. A tithe literally means in Scripture, it is translated as a tenth. It is a tenth of the income. It is a tenth of the food that is brought in. It is 10% of what is given. So when scripture says that a tithe of everything belongs to the Lord, it's saying that you as a steward, you as a manager of God's money, 10% of everything that he gives you, a tenth of it, a tithe of it, ultimately belongs to him and needs to be repaid back to him for his kingdom work when you put him first. That first bucket is 10%. Now, the tithe goes back a long time. It was instituted and initiated before the law of Moses. In fact, what we see in Scripture is we see multiple different tithes. Some are 10%, some are 10%, some are like 3% that happen every other time. But what we see is ultimately the Israelite people were giving 23% of their income back. Now, they didn't give all of that back for the same purpose as we do. Some of that was given back, 13% of it was given back for kind of their social aspects, right? The, the nation of Israel was not only religious, but they were also a social nation. So that 13% was more for what we would call taxes. But at the very minimum, the very basic standard of giving for the Old Testament people of Israel was to give 10% back to their local temple, their local sanctuary, their local congregation, their local church, so that God's mission could be moved forward in and around 
around the world through his name and glory. It was 10%. Now, let's pause here for a second. We have some time for this because I know there's some of you, and maybe you're in church for the very first time, and you're like, awesome, 10%. What do I need to do? I'm going to come back to you in a second. But there's some of you, you've been in church for a while, and you're you're just naturally a little bit cynical. You're naturally a little bit skeptical. And what you're saying right now is, Adam, I've heard the tithe before, and there are things about the tithe that I disagree with. And let me just, let me just talk about some of these disagreements for a second, right? The first one we would say, listen, we are no longer under the law. The tithe was an Old Testament thing. It was the Old Testament law. It was the commands that Scripture had in the Old Testament that everyone was supposed to follow. And we're no longer under the law. Okay, that's true, right? We're not under the law. But anywhere in Scripture did Jesus say, I have come to make the law irrelevant? No. Jesus actually said, I've come to fulfill the law, not make it irrelevant. And what we see in Scripture in the New Testament specifically is every time Jesus, especially you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount, most of Matthew right there, when Jesus is talking, he takes the Old Testament law and says it's no longer external, now it's internal. I'm going to take it further. I'm going to make the expectation more. I'm going to make it deeper. Jesus says, we're going to build upon what the law was, and we're going to make it more about your heart. So you would say, we're no longer under the law, right? Right. Jesus fulfilled it, but he didn't make it irrelevant. And you would say, no, 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 but like, like, we don't offer sacrifices anymore, right? So why should we tithe? That's another Old Testament law. True, but we see in the book of Hebrews that sacrifices were rescinded. They were told to be no longer needed because Jesus was our ultimate sacrifice. Nowhere in the entire New Testament from Matthew all the way to Revelation is the tithe ever rescinded. It's never taken away. And you say, but it's silent. Scripture in the New Testament doesn't really talk about the tithe. It does, but let's just say it doesn't. Does that mean, does does silence mean it no longer exists? No. No. All throughout the Old Testament, there are four or five references to where God's people are not supposed to uh, be doing any kind of cannibalistic things. The New Testament doesn't mention cannibalism. Does that mean that silence means it's okay for me to be a cannibal? No. Silence does not mean it's no longer valid. In fact, what we see in Scripture a lot of times is the silence of the New Testament means the Old Testament expectation was never rescinded, and it was always there. The New Testament just builds on it and makes it more of a heart posture than an obedience posture. Does that make sense? So another thing, we would say the tithe can be legalistic. You just get a bunch of people who attend a church, and I don't want to be one of those people who just, you know, I I give money, and I don't really mean it. I'm just like, okay, here's my duty, and it's just really dutiful. No, 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 no. We base that on this misunderstanding of the people of the Old Testament. The the people of the Old Testament, the people who were commanded to tithe back then, and we're going to see in the New Testament, they were commanded to as well. The people in the Old Testament who were commanded to tithe, they were actually the most generous culture in the history of the world. They, They gave more wealth and worth to God's temple and his fame and his glory than any other culture ever has in all of history. In fact, they were not this dutiful thing of like, I have to do this. No, they loved doing it. Exodus 36 tells us, as we looked at this the first week, where they're helping build part of the tabernacle, and, and God has to, Moses has to go to them and say, stop giving me money. You're giving me too much. Your generosity is overflowing. I need to restrain your giving because you want to do this too much. We don't see a group of people who are doing this out of obligation. It's a group of people who are excited about what God is doing, and they want to be a part of building his kingdom. Now, a couple more. We say, well, Jesus didn't tithe or, or tell us to tithe, and I believe in Jesus. I follow Jesus. I'm a New Testament person, okay? I, I agree with you. I am as well. I don't know if you know that, but Jesus did tithe. I just want you to know that. Jesus tithed. 
And you're saying, prove it. Okay, I'll prove it to you. Jesus, right, he, there, there was not a moment where the Pharisees accused Jesus of not tithing. But every other law he broke, they accused him of. Also, if tithing was the standard in his day, to not tithe would be sinful. And Jesus didn't commit any sin. He lived a perfect life. The assumption is he tithed. Also, there's this thing called the Talmud, which is what the Pharisees of his day, it's their, kind of their rules they would live by to help govern them and add things. For the people, the Pharisees of the time, one of the Talmud sayings said that if they know of somebody who's not tithing, they are not allowed to sit down at a dining room table and eat with them. But the Pharisees ate with Jesus all the time. We get the, the assumption is that he tithed. It was something he did. In fact, Jesus actually validated the tithe. In Matthew 23, 3, we see Jesus where he He's getting onto the Pharisees, and he's telling them, he said, you've been tithing, which is, he says, you've been tithing like a tenth of everything, every little thing, but you're neglecting mercy to other people, is what he says, and, and paraphrase. But what Jesus doesn't come back to them and say is in retribution, he doesn't say, hey, guess what? Stop tithing and go love people and be graceful and be mercy. No, no, he says, you need to be merciful and love people while you still tithe. He commands them to continue in their obedience, but ups the ante in the game further. In fact, like, let's just make this really honest. And this is challenging to me as your pastor in this moment right here. When I read scripture in the New Testament, when I see this, what I see is that the tithe, that 10% is the starting point that the New Testament builds on and adds to. It's as if the tithe is the floor, not the ceiling. It's the, the training wheels, not the bike ride. It's where we are to begin as we mature and grow in our faith and knowledge of walking with Jesus and living generously. Let me show you this, 1 Corinthians 16.2. This is the same. It says, Paul, Paul said, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in what? In keeping with your income. The idea is as your income, whatever there's a percentage, Paul, Paul doesn't say this specific percentage, but he says in keeping with your income, set aside that amount. And you get this idea that as our income grows, so should our generosity. As we make more money, our level of generosity should increase as well. It's part of what it means to give cheerfully. In fact, one of the things my wife and I have been having conversations about is what would it look like if every single year when we get a raise, whatever that raise was, say I get a 1% raise or 2%, raise, I'll do 2%, it's much easier. For say I get a 2% raise next year. What if I said, okay, instead of automatically adjusting my spending category by 2%, no, 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 I got a 2% raise, I'm increasing this by 1% and the rest goes over here. We might look up by the time we're 50 and 60, and we're giving away 50% of our income to God's causes without ever sacrificing this and this. Why? Because the tithe is the floor. We go up from there. So here's what I want to do. I just want to ask you, will you join us? I'm not asking you to do anything that myself and our staff and our elders aren't doing. Will you join us? We've talked about all the things the Mount does. We've talked about the impact we are making for one more. And don't forget, we said 11% of us are participating. Will you join us? Why? It's not something I want from you. It's something I want for you. I want you to be one of those people who experiences the blessings of trust and surrender and putting God first. In fact, you've got a little card on your seat when you walked in, whatever campus you're joining us at. 
And you can see on the back, there's different ways that you can begin to give. And maybe you, you know, you can stop by any of our giving kiosks. You can go online, like I talked about earlier. You can, you can send in a text message to the number there. You can mail your check. For those of you that are still, you know, 1997, you can do that as well. Uh, feel free to, to do that, right? But here, here's the thing. Here's, here's what I want to ask you. Remember, we're, we're, we're praying, right? We're asking God what's next for us. Some of you, you're not giving anything. Will you join us? Some of you, you're giving 5%. Will you join us at the 10%? Some of you are giving 10%. And as your pastor, can you give more? I'm not asking you to do something I wouldn't do. The same way I'd want you to pray more and read more scripture. Why? Because there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. It is about surrender and trust and following Jesus. Malachi 3, 8 through 10 says this. I love this. When talking about the tithe, it says, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And God says, in tithes and offerings. And you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Verse 10, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. That's what he says. He says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing on you that there will not be enough room to store it. It's the only spot in scripture God says to test him. And what, what he's saying, listen, put me first. Just, just test me. And he says, if you put me first and you test me, I will open up the floodgates of blessings in your life. It might be financial, it might be spiritual, it might be emotional, we don't know. But here, here's, the, here's the issue. So many of us, this bucket, our fists are closed. We're holding on. And here's the, here's the, when I let go, not only do I let go of what's in my fist, but it opens them up to receive something new. Some of you, as your pastor, you are hurting yourself by holding on so tightly to something that God wants to do in and through you. Trust him. Let go. He says, test me, and I will open up the floodgates in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful that you, um, that you are a God who is so generous. God, we think about all the ways in Scripture that you, you give and provide and supply us, God. We think about you ultimately sending your Son to die on a cross for us so that we may be raised to new life, so that we may have the opportunity and the ability to show that generosity to others, God. I pray that we would be people who open up our fist and trust you. God, I want to be one of those people who who lives with 90% in your will as opposed to 100% without your will. God, let us be a generous church. Let us be people who aren't spontaneous, but practice the spiritual discipline of generosity. In your son's name we pray, amen.